As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. And I'm Ben. As always, we are joined by our super producer, Noel, the best damn garage in town, Brown. That's a long nickname. That's a long nickname, uh, but this is a very special episode. It is a very special episode. So, right. so special, in fact, that we're going to open up with a uh, Facebook message that doesn't really have much to do with this, yeah, right? Nothing to do with the topic, but it was a Facebook message that I wanted to reply to. I didn't get to it, so I'm going to I'm going to cover for my uh, my mistake, my error here uh, in the podcast. And I want to read a message that comes from a Facebook user named Don Wheat. And this is from about a month ago, and I never got back to her, so I apologize for that. But um, I just wanted to read it here because it's a good note, and it's got a couple of good ideas in it. Oh, cool. Um, so Don writes in and says, Hello, I've wanted to write you for, you guys for a long while and tell you how much I love your podcast. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Don. Uh, she says, I'm a graphic designer, uh, fine artist in Denver, and spend lots of time listening to podcasts. And I admit that I waited to last to listen to this one. Out of all the, you know, the How Stuff Works podcast. Mm-hmm. The reason is that I'm, I'm the stereotypical female artist who thought that I couldn't understand anything about cars or that it would be boring. I was so wrong. I love the history topics that you guys have done especially. Uh, so this leads me to a question. How many of your listeners do you think are female? That's a good question. Hmm. I guess we, we really don't have any way of knowing how many listeners are female. We can kind of track that sort of thing on Facebook, you know. Yeah, we can do like a rough demographic, yeah, I guess. something like that. But um, I would assume that it's a it's a lower percentage than the male listeners, I would think. It's got to be a much, less, uh, just his, much lower. Just historically, it would, tend, it would tend to be, I know when I've heard of stuff from other car shows, for instance. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, you know, as far as... I'm concerned every listener is welcome. So Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So she she continues on here and says, Recently I met a woman in Denver that works with a car dealership and told me that she sometimes holds classes for women to learn about cars. Cool. Now you've touched on this from time to time, but what car owning tips would you give to someone who really doesn't know much about their vehicle? Mm. Second, as we chatted, she commented how cell phone technology is driving car technology and in some cases car companies are really struggling to keep up. I think this is fascinating, which is just which just just shows how much I have gleaned from your show. Keep up the great work, and thanks for keeping me entertained and educated, Don. That is very nice, Don. Thank you for writing in. And uh, those are a couple of really good ideas yeah. about um, cell phone technology pushing or phone technology pushing mm-hmm. automotive technology. That's a great idea, and also yeah. uh, kind of a um, I don't know maybe car a, owning tips. Yeah, best practices maybe. Yeah, yeah, car owning one hundred and one. Yeah, that doesn't. I mean, okay, you're saying specifically towards women, but. I don't know, that kind of is a general thing. Like, there's a lot of guys out there that really don't know a whole lot about cars that maybe want to learn the, the very basics, the very simple things right. that you do. How, uh, I call them how not to break X kind of classes. Like, <laughs> how not to break a car. Uh, I've been working with uh, some, some of our friends here in the video department, which, you know, um, I've been part of for a long time, mm-hmm. off and on. It's oh, a weird story. Yeah. But, uh, but one, one of the things for a basic camera class that we would do 
the actual name of it is how not to break this camera. <laughs> and it's all the basic stuff. So if you just say how not to break this car, uh, you can, you can do a good job. One thing before we get into it, Scott, one thing that is exciting about that topic, uh, both of them are brilliant, but the, the one that the first one really sticks out to me immediately because you and I have read those studies that say, uh, the, the younger generation, the so-called millennials, of which I am technically a part. Isn't that weird? At the tail end. I'm at the, I'm at the beginning, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 All right. Just let me have my moment. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm, I'm kidding with you, but the, the stuff we've seen has argued that as a whole, as a unit, uh, people born in that generation are less likely to own a car a little less likely to be interested in one. And I would question the methodology there, but I also think this is, this is a great thing to give people because in here in the U S you are required by state law to have, uh, to have some sort of qualification to drive a car, right? Sure. And we've done stuff about licensing and stuff, but people aren't required to have some sort of understanding of their vehicle beyond basic safety tips. Oh, this is a whole can of worms, Ben, because I think that the, uh, you know, when you say something like that, a blanket statement, like some qualifications to drive a car, oh boy, there's, there's yeah. so many degrees of this. As long as you can pass that state administered test, uh-huh. you get your license. Right, right. And, uh, and that's way different than it is in other countries, I understand. I mean, they, they make you tow trailers with, uh, mm-hmm. with, with, um, you know, loads that shift. Yeah. They make you do all, you have to learn standard transmissions, you know, mm. as well as, as well as, of course, automatics. You have to get like, uh, they give you a puppy on the first day of driver's ed, and then at the end of it, you have to, you have to abandon it in the woods. <laughs> That's very, just, just to show you can do that. It's a difficult, difficult test. <laughs> yes, right. So, uh, yeah, d- the requirements are so different, uh, from country to country. From sure. State to state here in the United States is not all that different, but, uh, no, there are some exceptions for things like Farming, early licensing for yeah, farming. And, and the level that you take it now, I mean, we've, we've talked about this in the past too, is that how I took it and I think how you took it, if I remember, yeah. uh, I was through the school mm-hmm. and it took me several months to get my license and I'm talking like going in at six in the morning and staying until noon. Right. And the driver's test was several hours on the road each day after a certain point of that, you know, you know, month and a half or whatever right. it was. Uh, it was a, it was a difficult process, but other people go to a driving school where they get their license in, you know, it seems like a week. Mm -hmm. Uh, It could be a little longer, but, you know, ballpark somewhere in there. Um, So it's a much reduced time frame, but you still learn the same things. You just don't maybe get the uh, the immersion that you would in a class like that was was offered through the school. Well, there's so, but the thing is there, yeah, there's so many basic things that could be added to that that would make roads safer and make drivers more, I guess, uh, independent, mm-hmm. you know, and not having to depend on someone else to help them. Like everyone should, I think for part of a driving test, here's a basic one, part of your driving test, the car you drive in to take the little obstacle course, you have to get out and change a tire. That's that's a great thing. To do. Uh, that would be a great thing to do. Uh, you have to be able to name different parts of the engine. Open the hood. What's that? And you have to say, they're, you know, you have to name something also smart, you know, name the fill points in your car. You're like, what are, right. the, what are the serviceable items on the car? Right. Uh, we could go on all day about this, but we, I think we've gone off track. Dawn <laughs> hit we have. Sorry, Don. it's just such a good idea. We're right away. We can't even talk about the, the cell phones pushing car tech yet. Uh, we should save that for an episode. <laughs> well, either, either way, I just want to say thanks, Don, and uh, keep listening. Yeah. We'll, we'll hopefully keep you entertained. Yeah. Yeah. And, and educated. And for everyone else, of course, uh, our best ideas come from listeners. So most of the most important part of the show to guys. So uh, if you want to take a page from Don's book and write in with a suggestion, uh, we'd like to hear it. We're not the most punctual at times, but we do keep a list of stuff we want to do. We, uh, we definitely have a list and uh, the punctual thing. We do our yeah. best. Yeah, we do. We do our best. We do our best. Okay. Here's one that's uh, okay. This one's from a few months ago. Speaking of listener mail. Yeah, Ben, and here's one that comes from a listener. His, uh, his name on Facebook is, uh, is Ratfink. And you gotta love that. That's, uh, you get extra yeah. credit for that name. Yeah, two, uh, two extra points. Two extra points. Wow. That's very arbitrary. I'm very cheap with points. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. You're right. It is arbitrary, which, uh, well, I'm, I'm giving him 50. What? His real name is Jake. All right. Jake goes by Ratfink. All right. Okay. So, so Jake writes in and says, 
I'm a huge fan of your show, guys. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks, Jake. Uh, that's another five points. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I personally owned and was restoring a 65 Caddy and am now building a Cafe Racer. By the way, the Cafe Racer episode was excellent. From a Honda CB750. Oh, that's very cool. What wow. a cool project. Um, I have a couple of show suggestions. You haven't done a show on Smokey Eunuch. Uh, he was a troublemaker in NASCAR and did many strange and experimental designs for Indy, including a car with a pod for the driver and an engine built torque the opposite direction for better overall oval handling. Uh, you could also do a show on Mickey Thompson um, and, uh, you know, goes on with a couple other different things. But uh, that is a fantastic idea, the, the, the Smokey Eunuch thing. And that's what we're going to cover today because this guy is a real character. Yeah. Oh, man. A legend. Uh, so much so that you'll often, when he is eulogized, you'll often hear people saying, we need more characters in racing. And they'll go, well, what do you mean when you say character? And then the inevitable reply is someone like Smokey Eunuch. Uh, so what we'd like to do today, let's see, Scott, what do you think? There's so well, much here. Can I, can I just point out one thing before yeah. we start here? Yeah. When I say a character in racing, in NASCAR racing, I'm not talking about like uh, the celebrity status that some of the guys have now. Like Almost, no, like, no, almost no. like rock stars or something like that. You know, they travel around in the big motor coaches and yeah. they're flashy and they do all the news interviews and everything. It's not like that. And what I'm talking about is a character, like a real character, like somebody who challenged every rule, somebody who changed a lot of rules, somebody bent many, many rules, somebody who's involved right from the very beginning, somebody who almost, if you if you saw him at the track, he would look out of place. That's what, the, and I'll, yeah. I'll describe that in just a moment. But he didn't look like he belonged there really, which is kind of strange <laughs> to say, but he really didn't. Um, much later in the series, I guess, maybe not initially, uh, but. It, he is uh, it's almost like uh, everything you read about him is, almost sounds like a tall tale. Yeah, it? there's almost this because there, there's some Americana to it. it it's almost like uh, Pecos Bill, you know, or it, something like that. Exactly. A lot of these things have achieved almost like legend status. And mm-hmm. some of them, I, un- I understand, get embellished over the years. I, I get that. You know, that's kind of what you do with a story like that. And uh, I'm going to dispel a couple of different things here today, maybe. Hopefully, yeah, if we get hopefully. To, if, if we yeah. mention them, because there's so much that we would need to get to uh, regarding Smokey Eunuch, and and if we don't touch on every single little thing, uh, you'll have to forgive us for that. But we'll we'll do our best because uh, this guy was uh, again quite a character. He lived yeah. until about 2001, mm-hmm. uh, so from 1923 all the way through 2001, he was heavily involved in NASCAR in the very very early days and uh, in IndyCar as well. Had his hand in drag racing a little bit, not a whole right. lot, but some of the stuff that he did. Uh, influenced series outside of those as well. Can-Am, Formula mm-hmm. One. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just, uh, he, he was an amazing guy, very mechanical, and that comes right from the very beginning. Yeah, and even outside of racing, he was uh, he was a well-known mechanic and inventor. He's got some patents as well. Uh, so let's start at the beginning, yeah, right? We should start with his real name. <laughs> we should start with his real name. His real name was Henry Unit. Yeah. Uh, now, the, the name Smokey came about a little bit later, which we'll get to in just a moment here, I promise. But uh, but his real name was Henry Eunuch, and it's not quite as catchy as Smokey Eunuch, is it? No, no. It's, it doesn't roll off the tongue like Smokey or Engelbert Humperdinck, for sure. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Eunuch, that's an interesting last name. Some people might think Y-U-N-I-C-K, uh, and it is because his parents were from Ukraine. Ah, uh, you know what? Just I need to say it. If you, when you first hear that, you might chuckle a little bit with a, with a different spelling. Right, it's a uh, very a, different thing. It's a completely different thing. This is Y U N I C K. So Smokey Eunuch, different name, different thing. And I'll tell you, man. Growing up, when I growing up, I heard Smokey Eunuch's last name before I learned the word Eunuch, and uh, I always thought like I, I didn't understand what what a quote unquote Eunuch would be in that in that latter sense. So I thought a eunuch was like a fan of smoking eunuch <laughs> for a few years until, until, no, you know, I'm old. So I, I, we didn't have stuff I could Google at that point. So I, you know, I went to the library and got a dictionary and then had my mind blown oh, at a I, young age. I bet. Yeah. That's I didn't right. understand. Well, but anyway, I, I just felt we need to clear that we up. We need to clear that yeah. up. And now it's clear. So. His uh, his parents come from Ukraine. He grows up on a farm in Pennsylvania. Uh, his father passes away when he is a teenager, when he is only 16. Yeah, 16 years old. So he's left to run the family farm, drops out of school yep. at this point in order, to, in order to do that. 
And he was mechanical, as we said, right in the very start. He took, uh, he took, uh, as many people will tell you, he took an old car, like a junked car, mm-hmm. and created a tractor out of it. And I, I seem to remember listening to a, uh, a bit of a documentary somewhere that said something about why he felt the need to create that tractor. I and mean, of course, you need a tractor on a farm, and this is a, ch- you know, cheap, simple way for him to do that. Um, and also a project for him. But I think there was something, <laughs> this is funny. He kind of butted heads with, uh, with a horse on the farm. Uh, a horse that was, you know, typically used to do some of the plowing and things like right, that. Right, yeah. And uh, this horse and him did not get along. I don't remember the name of the horse now, but uh, this is more out of spite against the horse than anything, I think, Ben. He created <laughs> this this kind of uh, ramshackle uh, tractor right. out of this old junk car just so he didn't have to deal with that stupid horse anymore because the, the horse would apparently, like, you know, ram him into fences and stuff like that. It was like a mean-spirited horse. Which is and, true. <laughs> as everyone knows, they're... <laughs> There are such things as mean-spirited horses. Oh, okay, come on. I, I, it was funny, though, that, you know, like, out of this uh, this this rivalry, this battle between the two of them, this man, you know, yeah. Smokey versus this horse, uh-huh. that he created a tractor out of it just to get around using it. You know, it reminds me a little bit of the old story about the guy who invented the revolving door. Uh, the The official thing, you know, revolving doors are very useful in skyscrapers, tall buildings, just because of the way they address pressure. Sure. Yeah. Right. Oh, and in uh, stadiums that require air pressure to keep the uh, the roof up. Yes, exactly. Uh, however, uh, this guy, I think his name was Van Cannell, Theo Van Cannell, I want to say. Hmm. Apparently, the real reason he invented revolving doors is because he thought it was utter bunk that he should have to hold the door for uh, women. Oh, that's terrible. He was like, he was that... Much he was so upset about it that he invented a different kind of door. Oh, that's crazy! Which which brings into question the the etiquette for a revolving door. Like, do, does the man go through first because that's the person doing all the pushing, or do you allow the female to go through first, which requires them to do all the pushing? Technically, technically, in a revolving door, uh, the the guy is supposed to go first. Okay. So now we know. Now, now everybody, now all of us can overthink this when we go to the next revolving door. Uh, but this, uh, we're off track again. We're off track again. I was just, I, I just think we've run into a couple of very interesting things. So as much as he hated this horse, he loved motorcycles. He was building them and racing them, right? Absolutely. Yes. And, uh, he bought what was just kind of a simple, cheap, uh, surplus motorcycle. Right. But I think it was an Indian motorcycle. Now that I, now I've seen some photographs of, of a young, very young smoke eunuch on his, uh, on his motorcycle and I saw a, uh, an Indian logo on there. So I'm pretty sure he had a pretty cool bike. However, you know, he thought he was, uh, as somebody said in one of these other documentaries, um, he thought he was the greatest tuner in the world at this point, even at that age. <laughs> so he would, uh, he would, he would tinker around with this thing, make it, uh, you know, kind of souped up a little faster than it should have been probably. And uh, he took it out to the local track and would race on the weekends with this thing. And the, the announcer during his very first race when he brought it out, um, I guess he wasn't quite as good at tuning as he thought he was. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing smoked the entire race. Which gave him uh, a nickname, something a little bit better than Henry. Yeah, because the announcer, of course, called him Smokey. You know, <laughs> Smokey bringing up the rear or whatever it was. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and so he goes back to work on Monday morning or whenever. And so, you know, on Monday after, you know, this this weekend of racing or whatever, his friends caught word of, you know, how the announcer was announcing him during the races. And uh, and the nickname Smokey just kind of stuck with him for the rest of his life. Yeah. Uh, even when he joined up with the Army Air Corps in 41, <laughs> he was the pilot of a B-17, which, uh, for those of you familiar with that, is often known as the Flying Fortress because of their size. And he was young. He was only like 18 at this point. Yeah. Uh, was 17 or 18, maybe 17 even at this point. Uh, so very, very young, but, uh, you know, somehow advanced to the rank of, of you know, being a, a pilot for this, uh, this B-17. Um, and he flew, when he flew over, um, Europe, right? He was, uh, he was in something like over 50 missions in right. Europe. And yeah. he, I think he was stationed out of Italy. But then he transferred to the Pacific Theater following VE Day. Yeah, and uh, his his group while he was piloting was called Smokey and His Firemen. Hello, 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Smokey and his fireman, that's a good name. Yeah, uh, he got out. The Flying Tigers, right? That was who he's with? Yes, the Flying Tigers, the, the famous Flying Tigers. Uh, he was, uh, he had flown for them. And after his time in the service, he eventually married in 1946 and moved to Daytona Beach, Florida, because uh, he had flown over it while he was training. And when he noticed it from the air, he said, yeah, I'm going to make it to that place. Beautiful place, right? Beautiful place. And it's warm. That was one thing that he always said was it's beautiful and warm there. That's where I want to be. Uh, probably a stark contrast to the farm in Pennsylvania, right? Right. No yeah. kidding. <laughs> so, so this is a perfect spot for him to be. 1946, Daytona, which now think about this. When did uh, NASCAR form? NASCAR was formed in, uh, I, I want to say, 1948. I think that was when uh, NASCAR came. I have a note on that somewhere, but I believe it was 1948 when it was actually founded. But... They were racing stock cars earlier than that. And uh, team owner, his name was uh, Marshall Teague, a local stock car uh, race team owner, um, came over to Smokey, you know, because he had already opened this garage, which he called, uh, which, man, I can't believe we didn't, we skipped right over that. But he had opened a garage in 1947 uh, that was called uh, Smokey's Best Damn Garage in Town. And that is quite a boast, I guess, you know, to yeah. say that this is the best garage in town. but. Especially there with all the stock car mechanics and everything, you know, mechanical that was going on. It was, it was a racing city, even if, even then. Right. Uh, but it was right on Beach Street in, in Daytona, Florida. And he opened it in 1947. It stayed open all the way until 1987. You could have gone to that garage up until 1987 and seen Smokey hanging out there, you know, if it wasn't out on the race circuit somewhere. But increasingly irritated with being there. Yeah, well, he, he closed the doors on the garage in 1987 because he said there are just no more good mechanics. Yeah. Outright said, that's it, I'm done. I, I can't call it 
the best damn garage in town anymore because it's not. There just aren't any more good mechanics. Which, uh, you know, it's got to be a, a, a morale blow for the people working there. Well, the but you know what? Those people knew what he's like because this guy, I mean, overall, Smokey Eunuch is, a, is an absolute straight shooter. He'll tell you exactly what he's thinking and what he thinks about what you're doing. And uh, I've, I've learned that over watching, you know, many, many video clips of this guy, documentaries, reading about him. He he just no holds barred. If he was thinking it, he would say it. And a lot of people really appreciated that about him. And it makes him just, again, a, a, quite a character in the pits, um, you know, in news conferences or whatever happened to be. You know, anybody, t- reporters talking to him, some of the comments from this guy are just outrageous. And, and they're funny. <laughs> yeah. Funny. Yeah. He's got that kind of uh, off the cuff. Uh, I guess um, he's candid, maybe a good way to say it. Sure, yeah, yeah, and, and uh, in a good way. And in a world, you know, where often nowadays people speak with such careful filters and stuff. Well, this guy was completely down to earth. He was a uh, salt of the earth guy. I mean, really, really, he was uh, just a, just a, an amazing character. And uh, you know, his uh, motorsports Hall of Fame induction speech. You should listen to that if you got a you know, ten minutes to spare. Yeah, uh, that is. I, I can't even begin to tell you how crazy that speech is. It's so funny from beginning. It had me laughing out loud, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is pretty good, actually. Uh, so, yes, 1948, that's when NASCAR uh, NASCAR is founded, uh, which is a good segue for us to talk about Smokey's role in racing. So he's got the best damn garage in town, right? Mm-hmm. And this is still the era of good mechanics, and word spreads that he's pretty good. Uh, it spreads far enough uh, to reach a guy named Marshall Teague. Mm-hmm. And Marshall Teague at the time owns a stock car race team. And he he says to Smokey, you know, come on, join up the team, join up with our team. And Smokey accepts, uh, although he doesn't, he, he's never raced in stock car racing before. Ah, that's a thing. But he says, you know what, that doesn't matter because uh, look at, you know, well, Bill France, he said, Bill France, who founded founded NASCAR, he said he didn't know anything about stock car racing either. We were just <laughs> doing what we knew how to do, which was build fast cars uh, or, you know, something in that general term. He said we didn't know. I think his actual you know phrase that he said was none of us knew nothing at the time. Um, none of us knew how to race a stock car. France started NASCAR and he didn't know what the hell he was doing either. So, uh, yeah. you know, we were all kind of learning this game as we went along. And um, that's kind of the the the. Uh, the genesis of, of this the smoky legend is that you know w- because he was there in the very beginning, the NASCAR rules were about one page long. That was it. It wasn't mm-hmm. like this big rule book that you know has all these stipulations and um, you know asides and um, you know right. annotations and all that so, caveats. Yeah, exactly. Fine it, print. It wasn't like that. But a lot of those rules are in place because of Smokey, and and so you know they would go to a race, and uh, you know if the rule book didn't specifically say that you can't do something. Smokey would do it. And then the next race, they would say, well, you can't do that. And they would add a rule. And he would go around that rule as well. So he wasn't breaking rules. He wasn't he wasn't uh-huh. uh, cheating. He was just simply going around the rules that were there. It's kind of that gray area, the reading between the lines in the rule book that, that made this guy what he is. But, again, he's involved early, early on. And I think he built a car in 1948 for um, Herb Thomas, I believe his name was, the guy uh-huh. that, that, that drove the fabulous Hudson Hornet. Yes, uh, you are correct. Cool car. That's a that's an amazing car, and you know we we that's part of NASCAR lore is the the you know fabulous Hornets, mm-hmm. um, fabulous Hudson Hornets, and uh, and and Smokey was the crew chief for that team. Yeah, and uh, that was the Southern Five Hundred in Darlington, and that Hudson actually won the race. Yeah. Now remember, this guy he's self taught. He's a mechanic. He's a builder. He's a crew chief. He's an inventor. Um, he's also a designer. He's a racer. He's he's all this stuff, but he's uh, it just for whatever reason, he's kind of got the magic touch with engines. He just seems to be that kind of guy. And he can look at something, a race car, and he can determine how to make that car faster or better, uh, you know, within the framework of the rule system. Now, uh. now well, yeah, that is within the framework. Because, well, actually, okay. Because okay, we now, have some things to talk about okay. once that comes Well, now up. that I'm saying within the framework, I mean, um, he's bending the rules. He's thinking way outside of the rule book. But, but then again, if it's not in the rule book, then you can do it, right? It's legal yeah, until it, they say it's not. Right. Uh, let's say that he helped define some of the rules. That's uh, Okay, that's a better way to say it. Because uh, while we're talking about this, this is one of those uh, 
this is one of those legends that you hear about with him. And I'd like to go ahead and just talk a little bit about it. Uh, the old seven eighth story. Okay. All right. Are Do you, you want to save it? Well, you know, that's one of the uh, one of the legends that I'd like to dispel, I guess. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do, too. Okay, well, well I'm just making sure that we're on the same page yeah. on this one, because there's the common belief that the 7-8th Chevelle is a real thing. Right, and what we're talking about, uh, some people may remember this, some may not, is that one of the big stories that always went around that you might have heard about Smokey Eunuch through the years is that he made a 7-8th scale 66 Chevelle. And that he raced it without NASCAR knowing. Yeah, driver Curtis Turner, I believe is his name. Number uh, 13, right? Right. Black and gold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, this, it turns out, is not not true. Not necessarily true. Now, he did some major, major modifications. To that he car. did. He did. Uh, it is true that, uh, there, that he took, uh, what was it, three Chevelles, Scott? Uh, I believe it's three. So here's the thing. Of those three, the second one wasn't built by him. It was from Chevy Engineering, and then Smokey and some Chev- Chevy techs finished it uh, there at the garage. Modified it heavily. Modified it so heavily, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the This car had uh, 66 bodywork, even though it was called uh, 67. So that gives some of the um, – I think that's where some of the confusion starts. Mm-hmm. Uh and the popular thing, the idea is that he just made this seven-eighth scale miniature to cheat uh, the NASCAR rule book. Yeah, but as a lot of people have pointed out, if it truly was a seven-eighth scale car, right, it would be so dramatically different in size. So noticeable. Yeah, it would be. It would be like a miniature vehicle out there on the track. Now, I know that sounds uh, a little strange, but other people have said, you know, maybe it was a 15 16th version of it right and that's not correct either no what he did was he took the uh the hood and lowered it so he modified the windows modified all the uh all the pillars you know a pillar b pillar c right. pillar. um what else did he do right now the arrow mods uh weren't all super successful because he tried to smooth the floor pan and that that may not have been the best move but uh here's here's the thing going back to your earlier point uh seven eighth scale car would be around like two feet shorter than a regular version. There's no way someone could not notice that. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge difference. And, and, um, as far as, uh, you're talking about length, right? And then mm-hmm. height wise, it would be something like 10 inches lower than the other vehicle right. on, the, on the track. Cause there were other Chevelles out there. Yeah. Uh, so, so they would see that immediately. I mean, it would have stuck out sort to, of thumb. to anybody. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, the NASCAR officials would have found that. However, with his modifications, they were so slight and so, 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 um, cleanly done yeah that's the thing about all of these things they're so cleanly done that even you know during during the uh, scrutineering process for nascar before each race you know they have to uh inspect every vehicle uh the, the things that he had done to these vehicles were so slight and so uh so perfectly done that really a lot of the stuff slipped through before they ever even found it and then other racers would say hey, hey you know what i'm gonna call shenanigans on what uh, <laughs> eunuch's doing over there in his garage because there's something about that car. Why is it, you know, why is it so much faster than every other car out here? So here's one example. Um, what did get him in trouble in this famous Chevelle case was uh, w- one of the things he did was he moved the body of the vehicle back on the chassis by about two inches. This moves the aerodynamic center of pressure a little closer to the rear. And that's one of the things that NASCAR was upset about. Very clever. And is this the same one? I, I believe this is the one that even, the you know, the drip rails underneath the uh, the edge of the car, I think he moved those closer to the center. He did little things like that, just little, right. little tweaks here and there uh, that made a huge difference out on the track. Uh, the stuff that you just wouldn't think of, he was mm-hmm. thinking of. And uh, this, I mean, this is out of time, though. This is something that happened much further on in the story. I just wanted to give that as an example. Mm-hmm. Of the and some of the legends you hear about them are true, but that one, that one just doesn't pass a couple basic tests. All right, <laughs> you know, I, I, there's a couple other things that I want to mention here, and I don't know if this specifically pertains to the to the '66 um, Chevy Chevelle, uh, you know, the, the seventh ace car that we just talked about, sure. or not. This might be another smoky unit car, but um, there were ways that he got around um, qualifying regulations and things like that. So 
Um, and I think one, and this is just off the top of my head, this one, but uh, there was a vehicle that he once qualified with uh, fender skirts on the rear wheels. And everybody thought, well, that's crazy. What are you doing? You're not going to be able to, to, you know, they said, well, go ahead and do it. But you've got a yeah. slight aerodynamic advantage mm-hmm. uh, by doing that. But when, you come, when it comes to the time to pit that vehicle, how are you ever going to get those rear tires off with those fender skirts in place? Yeah. And, uh, and they were actually in place. It wasn't like, um, they just weren't cut out like, uh, like the stock cars would be the other day for fast changes. And, uh, so he qualified it with those tires on and, and at that speed, you know, with, uh, the, uh, the increased aerodynamic, um, uh, advantage, I guess. Sure. He qualified faster than everybody else in that car. And then when he got back to the pits, all he did was just cut the arches out at the track for the race. And people said, no, 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 you can't do that. You gotta, you gotta, and he said, well, show me in the rule book where it says I can't. Right. Do it. He says, I had, you know, he says that, um, I'm allowed to cut the fenders. It just doesn't say when I'm allowed to cut the fenders. And I'm, I'm choosing to do it between qualifying and the day of the race. And I mean, talk about how bedeviling that must be for the NASCAR authorities, <laughs> but it's part of the game. Honestly, it, it really is. It's like this cat and mouse that the game that's played all the time and it still happens today. I mean, I know this happens. Um, some other things that he did, the way to get around some of these regulations, mm-hmm. um, all right, he used, uh, he used 11 foot coils of two inch diameter tubing for the fuel line, which added about five gallons of extra fuel to his vehicles now. So he's carrying all this extra fuel because they had fuel tank regulations that said right. it has to be this size, this capacity, et cetera. So they have him in the pits. This is another one of those, maybe a tall tale, right? Yeah. Um, but this one's a little more plausible. Yeah. So this adds five gallons by adding those 11 foot coils of two inch tube, uh, to the car's fuel capacity. So NASCAR officials, uh, come to him on this specific vehicle with a list of, of nine different items that Unic has to fix before the car is allowed on the track. And so the NASCAR officials have taken out, at this point, they've removed the fuel tank from the car and they say, we're going to inspect this fuel tank. Well, inside the fuel tank, they uh, they find a basketball. By the way, that's deflated, and then he would inflate he would inflate it uh, for the you know the capacity so the yeah. reach capacity. Then he would deflate it during the race and allow it allow additional fuel to be <laughs> But so they've got the tank out, and uh, he, they say we've got nine items we want to inspect this car for. And he says fine. He jumps in the car, starts it up without a fuel tank, and drives back to the pits. He <laughs> says you better make it 10. <laughs> so knowing that they're going to catch him with the extra fuel coils. Right. So this guy, I mean, again, uh, unbelievable the way he goes around these things because they don't say anything about an inflatable device in the fuel tank that you're not allowed, you're not yeah. allowed to do that. His approach is, I mean, it's super, uh, it's super hair splitting, but the, the assumption is, which I, I do see some validity in the assumption is entirely on the letter rather than the spirit of the law Anything that is not explicitly forbidden is clearly permitted. Yeah, and as he said, all the other guys out there were cheating ten times as much as we were. <laughs> That's how he put it. He said, you know, it's not it's not just me. I just happen to get the bad rep for it. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best 
lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was we'll it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Uh, so he would do things like, um, he also built other cars, too. He built, uh, and we'll get back to NASCAR in just a minute, but he also built a, a 68 Camaro for Trans Am racing. Mm-hmm. And he set a few speed and endurance records with this car, like out of Bonneville and you know, other places with different engines. Uh, but it never won a race while he owned it. And then he sold it to a guy named Don Yanko. And pro- you know people probably know the Yanko name. Um, mm-hmm. you know, modify, uh, um, car, uh, tuner, I guess. And, um, the, uh, w- with Don Yanko, the car went on to win several races, but the car superficially looked like a stock, uh, you know, Camaro from the day. Ah. The 1968 Camaro, but it wasn't. Yeah, it was only superficial. This was so clever. So they dipped the body panels in acid. And they use thinner windows, so although it looked the same, its weight was reduced. Now, that's uh, an old drag racing trick, right? Yeah, that's an it's an old school gag. Yeah, it is. But but to incorporate that into Trans Am racing, that was something brand new for them, right? And uh, uh, not only that, he did other things too, right? Yeah, yeah. The uh, the windshield was at a more laid back angle. The body was the front end was tilted downwards, and all four fenders were widened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, he also moved the front suspension higher and lower, uh, and the floor pan was moved up to lower the car, and then <laughs> just a lot of other things. Now, this is the oh, this is the one that had the drip rails that were brought closer. Oh to yeah, the yeah, body, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for just a slight aerodynamic improvement, but um, just unbelievable. And some of the stuff that he included as well, like there was a connector to the engine oil system that was extended into the car's interior, yeah, which would allow the driver to add oil from a pressurized hose during pit stops. So the driver was doing that during pit stops. Mm-hmm. Um, saved a lot of time. And in order to allow the driver enough freedom of movement to do that, the shoulder harness was modified with a cable ratchet mechanism from a military military helicopter. So again, not just limited to engine modifications and aerodynamic stuff, uh, he was thinking about all aspects of this. You know, like how do how can I save time in the pits? I'm gonna let the driver do some of the things that we normally would do. Yeah, amazing. Uh, let's see what else. He, um, I'll just go back to racing real quick. Sure. So between um, late fifties to the early seventies, he was also in Indy five hundred racing. Uh, yeah, what fifty three through seventy or fifty eight through seventy three? Yeah, that right? yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and. Uh, he won the 1960 race, but here also, and you might even argue more importantly for the sport overall, he came up with some various innovations, right? Yep. Uh, <laughs> the one that always sticks out to me is the reverse torque special. Oh, this is so cool. So this is the engine running in the opposite rotation. Mm-hmm. Very smart. It spins opposite so that it, it, uh, it drives you into the corner better because you're making left turns at Indy. Yeah. So this this rotation assists you in driving into the corner harder, you know, at, at a higher speed, um, rather than the rotation that kind of throws you off balance or out of the corner. This right. is, all it really is is, I mean, when you think about it, uh, marine engines do this. They have if you have a, a a boat that has twin inboard motors, one spins one way, the other one spins the opposite direction, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's that's the case with this. Is he got the one that spins the opposite direction? I, must have been a marine motor that he used or something similar. Right. You know, well, he probably cooked something up himself. Anyway. But um, <laughs> he, he had some other stuff. He mentioned he won in 1960. That was with driver Jim Rathman at the wheel. So he was yeah. crew chief. Obviously. Yeah, he was crew chief. And it was a much different time at Indianapolis than it was now. You know, and yeah. you didn't have these cushy RVs like you had. He said a lot of times they were sleeping on cots in uh, Gasoline Alley. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it, it was just not the same type of thing. You know, you'd spend 24 hours there at the track working on these things, you know, overnight. Um, they called it, they called Indy his mistress because, um, he would visit there every May and that was it. He would just spend the month of May in Indianapolis with his Indy team. And then he would go back to the NASCAR circuit because that was his, uh, his main thing. He had 57 wins and two championships in NASCAR. Um, I think the championships came in 1961 uh, and 62. You know, and while we're talking about his NASCAR record, yeah. uh, you know, with the with the championships in 61 and 62, uh, prior to that, he had raced for other teams. In, in, uh, he was in Chevrolets in 1955 to 1956, yeah. Fords in 57 and 58, and then Pontiacs uh, 1959 through 1963, and that's where his championships came in. But I apologize, Ben. I derailed you from your Indy uh, car. Talk oh here. no! Come on. So, so let's get back to some of the innovations in IndyCar because, aside from the reverse torque special, there were a couple of other strange things that he came out. <laughs> yeah, with. it's Scott, of course. Uh, but before, but before we go, you know, that's how I always know when it's going to be a good topic is because we have so much to cover. We're just going to have to jump in with stuff as we remember. I know it's kind of scattered, but you so, know, here's here's the way we're going. At so it. let me uh, let me do some of the. We'll talk a little bit about Indy, but then I have some almost. Completely unrelated facts. Um, sounds great. Okay, so he uh, he also invented the Hurst Floor Shifter Special, and this vehicle had the driver's capsule mounted what they call side saddle. This is the weirdest thing. It's ever. the weirdest thing. It's it really pretty weird. Is. It's in sixty four. By the way, nineteen sixty four. And and do yourself a favor and go to go to the Googler and uh, <laughs> and search Hurst Floor Shifter Special to see a. Very or highly unusual Indy car from 1964. It's almost like um, like looking at a, a motorcycle with a sidecar, but the the driver, the rider, is, is in, in the, the sidecar. Side yeah, it's it's just the strangest looking thing. And that pod, I guess, um, Indy officials hated this thing. Yes, yeah, of course um, they would. The the side pod thing was somehow um, connected to the the chassis of the vehicle with only five bolts. I think right. That was it. But the control was over there, and there were innovations even within that. I mean, there were. There was like a, a squared-off steering wheel that gave mm-hmm. him more uh, knuckle room, I guess, yeah. in, in the, the driver's pod. Um, of course, the Hurst shifter was, you know, prominent on the right there. Uh-huh. Uh, but the engine, the fuel tank, all that other stuff was on the other, other side of the vehicle and uh, all extremely well-balanced, and it remained well-balanced throughout the entire race. So mm-hmm. no matter what load of fuel you're carrying, it was an extremely well-balanced machine. Yeah, and uh, another, another thing about this, uh, the next thing he did one of his other big innovations in 62 with Jim Rathman. Again, he designed a wing. He mounted a wing on the uh, Vista Special Watson Roadster. This wing allowed Rathman to reach corner speeds that no one in Indy had ever seen before. But when this is the thing, it wasn't perfect because on the corners, it was awesome, right? But on any non-cornering area, it increased drag so that the lap time overall was lower. Yeah, and Indy is a two-and-a-half-mile over. <clears throat> uh, so so this is a, a long distance where you're going, you know, on the straights, and it was, uh, it was detrimental to the vehicle. But he had a great idea, and, and it's hard to imagine an Indy car today without wings. I mean, that, they're, they're loaded with wings. There's wings sure. in the front. There's wings on the sides. There's wings, wings all over the place, everywhere. But prior to that, they didn't have them. And when you look at where he placed that wing... It was immediately above the driver, almost like, um, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the World of Outlaw cars uh, that have kind of that flying nun wing on the top. Yeah, you know, yeah, that allows yeah. them to corner at like 120 miles an hour on dirt or something, uh, super fast. But that wing placement is similar in that it's right above the driver on these great big struts. Oh, and, oh I'm sorry to interrupt. I have to oh, interrupt. no, go ahead. Just because I never get to use this word. Okay. Uh, that flying nun thing that you're talking about yeah. in a nun's habit. Yeah. I think the word for that is wimple. A wimple, really? Like, Dimple, but with a W. Oh, cool. I may be wrong, but this might also be my one chance I'll ever get to use that word in conversation. <laughs> well, you're welcome. Yeah, I'm just going to act like I didn't just brag about it, and I'm just going to pick up right where you left off and, like, so like a wimple, right? Oh, fair enough. Like, just like, <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll pretend as if I knew it, and I'll say, just like a wimple, Ben. Just like a wimple. All right, so, oh, so my just like a wimple, and right, this right. is on uh, Rathman's car. And the thing is that USAC, you know, the uh, um, that the United States Automobile Club, USAC, they immediately banned the use of wings, of course, you know, they, as they would. But they soon began to appear on other series, like in the Can-Am series and Formula One. So yeah. prior to this, you know, um, 
uh, prior to 1964, no one was really using wings like this until Smokey Eunuch put them on an Indy car. And then around 1970, USEC started again to allow the use of wings uh, on their race cars. So, right. so they're back in Indy, but it took the six-year gap of other series using them. So imagine, you know, Can-Am series without wings or, or Formula One series without it's wings. Tough. It is because it gave them such an advantage in in the corners. It allowed the the racing to be so much faster. Uh, and can I do a little bit of trivia just while we're in this area? Of course. All right. So this is this is strange, but it was pretty interesting to me because uh, Smokey Eunuch was kind of a Renaissance man, and he did a lot of stuff that that maybe people didn't know about. I, I think I may have gotten the number wrong. I said nine patents, but it was probably more like 12 patents. Yeah, I've seen numbers between uh, seven and 12. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I still wasn't, I hadn't completely nailed down the ones, but he did a bunch of experimentation, right? Mm-hmm. With things like uh, alternative energy sources and synthetic oil. He also invested in mining and petroleum and, uh, extraction in Ecuador, of all places. Got to diversify. Got to diversify your bonds. And he uh, he actually owned a hotel in Ecuador, and after every Indy 500, he would go there for a month and no. just chill out. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's the, well, that's the story. That's fascinating. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. And, you know, you mentioned patents and innovations. Well, he's got patents, uh, U.S. patents, yeah. on several things, on variable ratio power steering, um, the extended tip spark plug is his invention. Reverse flow cooling systems, high efficiency vapor carburetor, um, a claimed high efficiency um, vapor engine, which never entered production. And he installed that engine on a Pontiac Fiero, which is still around somewhere. It's hanging around somewhere. But um, this vapor engine ran on extremely, like an extremely lean air fuel mixture, um, something like 50 miles per gallon for this thing. It was around 1984. Um, it's, it's a unique story. I think, you know, some of the bigger magazines, I don't know if it's road and track or car and driver, but, uh, mm. they had some articles about this vehicle that, uh, that, um, it was, it was interesting what he was working on it. And I think it might've worked, but, uh, th- there was a few hangups with it. It wasn't exactly <laughs> perfect yet. Um, he was working on it and it just never came to fruition. Yeah, it, it didn't come to fruition, but that's, that's the nature of invention so often. You yeah, know? of course. Yeah. So he's got this kind of prototype Vero hanging mm-hmm. out there somewhere, but uh, I don't know who has that right now. And if you are listening and you have this, Fiero, feel free to write <laughs> into us. Another thing that might surprise people, it certainly surprised me, was that amid all of this, all, all of these innovations, this full-time racing, mining in Ecuador, uh, he also found the time to become a regular and rather popular columnist for popular science. Well, sure. A lot of people had questions. And he had a column, I think, that was called Say Smokey. Uh-huh. And, uh, and people would write in and say, like, I got this question about, you know, my truck's not working correctly. What's going on? He, he knew all these uh, power secrets and engine tuning sure. tricks. And he could answer just about anything that anybody brought to him, even if it was just a question, you know, that they had typed and, you know, sent him a postcard or whatever. You know, you yeah. to remember the day this was. Uh, so... It's fascinating, you know, that he would have the time to do something like that or would even want to do something like that. But I think it speaks to his character that, you know, he's also, you know, just a mechanic. He wanted to help people. Right. He uh, it's it's weird, though, that he was such a prolific writer because that wasn't the only magazine that he wrote for. He also wrote for Circle Track. Mm-hmm. And that's where he published some uh, candid pieces about his disagreements with NASCAR. Yes. Yeah. He wasn't uh, always on the best terms with uh, with Bill France, uh, you know, through NASCAR. And in fact, one of the reasons that he left NASCAR, um, this is, he had a driver, his name was uh, Fireball Roberts. Mm-hmm. And Fireball Roberts had a crash in 1964 at Charlotte Motor Speedway where um, he, he kind of, this is awful. The guy, you know, he, he had a crash where he suffered severe burns and he kind of lingered on for about 40 days before he died. And he was a good friend with Smokey, of course. You know, he's one of his team drivers. Um, but Eunuch began a, a safety campaign for modifications in NASCAR that would, would prevent some of these things from happening. You know, he, um, kind of like, um, oh, who was it? Um, Jackie Stewart did for Formula One. Mm. Uh, Smokey Eunuch did a similar thing, but he was a crew chief, not a driver. But, um, as, as a crew chief, he, he said, well, I can, I can show you a few safety modifications that will prevent a lot of the stuff. And he was overruled repeatedly. By Bill France Sr. and and as a result, you know all these back and forth arguments he had with uh, with Bill France Sr. Uh, Eunuch left NASCAR in 1970 and didn't come back. Now he also you know, um, supposedly 
designed what would be the first safe barrier. Now, I think there's other arguments as to what the safe barrier is, but right. here's his design. He had two pieces of plywood with mm. tires in between, like, re, you know, reused tires, I guess. Right, yeah. And um, that is officially the first safety barrier that he, or the first design for a safety barrier that he proposed to NASCAR. And NASCAR said, no, we can't, we can't go with something like that. And they kept the concrete walls. And they kept them for a long, long time until they went with uh, something they call the safer barrier, right. which is, of course, you know, modern version with foam and all that. But um, arguably, his design with, you know, the plywood and tires was mm. a, a first movable surface that would have prevented a lot of uh, potential NASCAR deaths during that time. And I know you've got to add an asterisk to that. You know, you could never really be sure, you know, what deaths could have been prevented, you know, if, you know. Looking back, you know, hindsight. Sure, but, yeah. But I'm just saying that this would have been a, a maybe a safer version of that. And he said the same thing, and a lot of other people did, but he got a lot of pushback from NASCAR at the time. Well, also, you know, part of part of their job is to proceed very cautiously with those any kind of changes to the competition. Oh, that would have been a major change, too. I mean, right. going from a concrete barrier that keeps, you know, the cars away from the fans to, uh, you know, adding this the safer barrier. Now, it probably would have been added outside of the concrete barrier, uh, so it would have, sh- you know, shrunk the size of the track effectively, you know, the width of the tracks. Right. But, uh, you know, it, still, it was a design that he came out with. And then later, there was a version of that, which is uh, similar in some ways. Mm-hmm. Kind of mm-hmm. suspect. Uh, <laughs> a little bit. Do you, yeah. want to, you want to talk about it some? That's nah, all right. That's nah, okay. I don't, I don't need to go too much into that. But you can dig into, uh, you know, the, the birth of the safety barrier and, and see what you find. Right. Uh, well, this is not to say, of course, that Smokey Eunuch is unrecognized for his various innovations. In fact, as you may have heard us mention toward the top of this, he is in the Motorsports Hall of Fame, of course. He is one of the first 20 people inducted in its inaugural year. Uh, he is also in the Motorsports Hall of Fame of America. As you know, if we want to just go on, he's in like more than twenty different halls of fame. On and on and on, and uh, and also he, uh, of course, there's uh, Smokey's autobiography, which he wrote. Um, oh yeah, yeah, Sex, Lies, and uh, Super Speedways. Super Speedways. Yeah, yeah. and that was read. Uh, the audiobook version of that was read by his good friend John Delorean. Yeah, yeah, that's weird too. That's strange, that. and and it wasn't just you know that that uh, that autobiography. He also wrote a book um, in 1984 that was called Smokey's Power Secrets, which uh, of course a lot of people really wanted to get their hands on at that point. And um, right around the time when he passed away, just prior to that, um, I think he had realized like, well, you know, I'm already getting kind of old, and uh, you know, he, he didn't yet have the diagnosis of, of cancer, which he didn't know was coming. Uh, but it kind of abruptly took him at the end. But he had already, you know, many years prior to that, started gathering up these stories, stories of, you know, times of the track, the birth of, you know, NASCAR, some of the uh, forgotten uh, folklore, I guess, of, of the right. sport yeah. and of his life and, you know, looking at it through his eyes. And he had this kind of loosely assembled uh, group of stories that I think he took it to an editor and said, you know, I need help putting this all together, but right. I want it written as I would say it, I want it, you know, and he had mostly done that. The editor just simply you know, worked on transitions and, and how to kind of smooth out the, uh, the stories, I guess, to make them work together. Um, but he, uh, he put together this, uh, this group of, uh, it actually, well, it became much more than it initially started out to be. It was just going to be one book. Uh, but there was a book called The Best Damn Garage in Town. And I, sh- I say book, but it's really a three volume box set. Mm-hmm. It's 1100 pages long, Ben with over 400 photographs, and it was sold in two different versions. There's the Racer's Edition that sells for $95, and then there's also, if you can get your hands on this, you should, there's also a signed, numbered, hardbound collector's edition that's currently not available, but I'm sure you can find them out there from some collector somewhere. Now, <laughs> the funny thing about this is it weighs... <laughs> the, the the That group that I just said... Yeah, the three the three volume set. Eleven pounds is what this thing weighs. This three volume set. It's huge. It's an enormous collection of, of stories. Now there's also smaller versions. Right? Yeah, I was going to say there's good news though. If you say a hundred dollars, eleven pounds. Yeah, eleven hundred pages. I don't have time to read eleven hundred pages. What the heck, you guys? Uh, and you would like to uh, have a, an abridged copy? I think you can get one that's around eight hundred pages. For thirty bucks, and it weighs four pounds. Yeah, four pounds. They call that the pocket edition. That's the pocket edition. Yeah, can you believe that? So, anyways, it's really, really, it's it's funny 
um, in the way it's written. And I've, I've read excerpts from this. I haven't read, of course, the whole thing yet or anything, but I've read excerpts from it. I really would like to get my hands on it. He's a good writer. He's, he can make you laugh out loud, he, which is a gift. He definitely can. And I mentioned that speech. There's a, uh, you can go to, uh, smokyunic.com. There's kind of mm-hmm. an official site and the launch site. And there's a, there's a section that is videos of Smokey. And of course there's clips from, you know, a documentary that was done about him on Velocity Channel, I think. And then right. there's a, there's a speech that was given by him. And I think it was from his, uh, his Motorsports Hall of Fame induction. And I mentioned that early on in this podcast, but it's about 10 minutes long. And it is hilarious from start to finish. It really is. He's a funny guy. And, uh, and, you know, as we said, you know, when, uh, early on I said, you know, he didn't look like he might, um, belong in the pits at Indianapolis, right? Uh-huh. What I was meaning was a lot of people when they saw him, they thought, well, look, there's some farmer has wandered onto the uh, Indianapolis 500 <laughs> you know, pit area. Cause that's the appearance that he had. But they said, you know, if you look at him carefully, he was really, he was thinking about things. He was, uh, you know, if they only knew what was going on behind those, uh, you know, behind those eyes, I guess. Right. Um, he was constantly looking at things and, and trying to find ways to adapt and, and change and to better, uh, the race cars that were at his disposal there, you know, his team. And, um, a lot of people just took his outward appearance as being someone who, you know, maybe he wasn't quite as slick as the other guys, the other crew chiefs, the other teams. Sure. But he was, I don't know how to put it, Ben. I want to, I, I want to say that he was, uh, he was a very thoughtful guy, but he was also, um, you know, kind of funny to be around. He would come up with sayings and things that, you know, sure. stick with you. And he was just an all-around good guy, but but very down-to-earth, very salt-of-the-earth guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, also I think there was the fact that he was completely unpretentious, you know, and he was not afraid to uh, call out an elephant in the room or to point out something. I think he took a... I think he took great joy sometimes in skewering uh, BS, for lack of a better well, phrase. Absolutely. He's walking around and he's got cowboy boots on, a beat up old hat. Corn cob a, pipe. A corn cob pipe. I love that part. Yeah. yeah. He would walk around with a corn cob pipe. Uh, that's, yeah. that's funny. I mean, but it was kind of a trademark of his. And, and after a while, people just knew who he was and, and knew what to expect out of him, knew what he was capable of. Right. And that's what's important. I mean, this guy was uh, really remarkable and. and uh, well, actually, his whole lifetime, really. I mean, sure. his accomplishments, you know, the way he changed racing. I don't, I'm trying to think of anybody that, that even matches, uh, you know, this type of character now. And I've, I've only come up with a few. I can't, I can't think of anybody right now that stands out to me as like a, a master mechanic yeah. like this guy. Like if you touch, if he touches yeah. it, he fixes it. I'm, I'm drawing a blank. I'm sure there are people, but I don't think they have the same almost celebrity appeal, you know, they're yeah. not as well known. Well, the closest I can come and now, now this is uh this is a little bit different, but I think like AJ Foyt or somebody like that, you know, he's, he's quite a character and he was a mechanic as well. And he was, you know, gifted as a mechanic, but he was, a, he was just an um, outrageous character on the track. Yeah. Um, I, I was kind of thinking like, you know, other racing names that people know that aren't kind of like the, the, uh, the modern rock star celebrity type, <laughs> you know, racers, but Right. Um, what about like Mario Andretti or something like that? Now he's not a mechanic. He's not anything like that, but he's a, he's a household name. You know, people know That's who, true. who Mario, Mario Andretti is. Um, but I, I think maybe AJ Foyt is about the closest I can come. There's of course, Junior Johnson. Sure. You know, um, I don't know. There's a, there's a few out there, but few and far between. And none exactly on the same level. Yeah. To no. be honest, uh, just because of all the combination stuff in one person, so, of course, as you could tell from the way we've been speaking about this, uh, Smokey Eunuch passed away after a, uh, after a long battle with leukemia. However, uh, his legacy ha- still endures because he's kind of inextricable from racing, you know, because he, because he, Futzed with the rules so much because he was the one guy crazy enough to do those uh, extra gas coils and then say, well, what if I just put the driver in a sidecar and say I couldn't? Uh, he is one of the biggest reasons that even if it's almost a devil's advocate position, he's one of the biggest reasons that racing is the way you see it today. Absolutely. And, you know, just to show you his character, you know, towards the end when he was uh, given this uh, this this relatively short amount of time to live after he got the, uh, the, the cancer diagnosis. Um, he went about, uh, repairing some of his, uh, his equipment, some of the, the, uh, you know, the, the engines, some of the, the, um, just the tools and stuff that he had around his shop still. And he said, you know, the reason is I want this stuff to go into the hands of somebody who will use it, somebody who knows how to use it and, and will, will, you know, do something with it instead of 
you know, being placed in a museum somewhere. Right. As, as he said, he didn't want some high roller to get a hold of it or, you know, some uh, you know, big conglomerate to, to just buy the whole thing and put yeah. it in a museum. Um, he said, I want somebody, you know, to, to actually be able to use this. And it was auctioned off, uh, you know, after he had passed away. Yeah. But he had taken the time to go back and make sure all that stuff was in working order so that whoever got it could actually use it. I think that says a lot about his character. Yeah, I think that I think it sure does. Um, and we hope that you enjoyed this episode, Jake. Uh, your score of bonus points remains at 57. <laughs> Again, very arbitrary. Very yeah. arbitrary. You know what? You know what? I'm going to I'm going to add an extra few. How many should we add? Uh, 26. All right. 26. So now you have a grand total of 83, sir. 83 completely arbitrary points at your disposal, accepted at uh, possibly numerous locations in your area. Car stuff locations worldwide. <laughs> so uh, let, let us know what you're going to spend those on. Uh, in the meantime, we didn't get to everything, but we do have to uh, we do have to mosey on out of here. Uh, so again, thanks for the fantastic suggestion. Listeners, if you have a suggestion, hit us up on Facebook and Twitter where we are Car Stuff HSW and you can see shows that for one reason, well, you can see things that for one reason or another might not make it to air in the episode. Because we're always digging in and finding interesting stuff. You actually found a uh, a fairly ominous thing about Tesla. Because we're we're digging in and we we find interesting stuff, and that's where we put it. You can check out every episode we have ever ever done on our website, CarStuffShow.com. And Scott, if people want to write to us directly, where should they send that letter? CarStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.